Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <music> Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'll be talking to Professor Aneta Pavlenko of Temple University, Philadelphia, about her new book, The Bilingual Mind and What It Tells Us About Language and Thought. The book covers a range of issues in the relationship between language and cognition, and its core thesis is that study of the monolingual mind in isolation is simply not enough to shed light on all aspects of the human mind. Drawing on a variety of sources, from traditional psycholinguistic experimental work to literary case studies and her own experience growing up as a bilingual, Professor Pavlenko debunks myths surrounding the so-called Sepia-Whorf hypothesis, and argues that even the coldly rational edifice of linguistic theory is shaped by the language backgrounds of the individual theorists involved. In this interview, we discuss all of this and more, including some of the big questions that face 21st century research into linguistic cognition. I'm talking to Professor Aneta Pavlenko of Temple University about her book, The Bilingual Mind. Aneta, perhaps we could just start by talking a bit about your background and your career so far. Could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. I was born uh, behind the Iron Curtain in Ukraine, which was at the time part of the Soviet Union. And uh, my mother was an English teacher who wanted to teach me English when I was six years old. And uh, that didn't go over well because it was very, very boring. (laughs) And so what she did then was uh, she hired a Polish teacher who came over to our place, a charming Pani Janna. And I started learning Polish, which was much easier. Easier. Because Polish as a Slavic language is uh, more similar to Russian than English. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that went well. Soon I was reading Polish and reading magazines and books. And then she hired a Spanish teacher. And so I started learning Spanish. I started learning French in secondary school. And all throughout, my mother kept speaking English to me. So I never, ever formally studied English, but I just picked it up from conversations with my mother, who was very determined to make me multilingual even though we lived in the Soviet Union and behind the Iron Curtain. So this is often a question that linguists laugh about, but uh, perhaps given what's in your book, maybe they shouldn't. How many languages do you speak? As a linguist, I do have to say that we don't have languages, right? They're social constructs. Of course. But if we go by the social construct, I speak Russian, which is my native language, Polish and Ukrainian and English, the language I work in. And I also work in French, Spanish, and Italian. And currently, I'm working on my Latin. Wow. So nothing exotic. Uh, There are many languages which I failed to acquire, Arabic amongst them. Well, as a historical linguist, I'm glad to see that you're branching out into dead languages as well. So how did you get bitten by the linguistics bug? In applied linguistics, um, I was very interested in the connection between languages and humans, not languages per se. So I was interested, how do we learn languages? How do we use them? What does it mean to be bilingual? And so it seemed natural that I would be specializing in the more applied and cognitive aspect of applied linguistics. 
And so when I was at Cornell, I was getting my degree in theoretical linguistics, but with specialization in applied linguistics and cognitive sciences. And how did this book come about? This is the book I always wanted to write ever since I was a graduate student at Cornell. And I actually sent my first proposal to Cambridge when I was still a graduate student. I'm very lucky to know that they have ignored it completely. (laughs) And I was not ready to write that book. And so many years later, I decided to revisit the idea of writing a book about the bilingual mind for academic audiences beyond the field of bilingualism. And I was still not ready to write that book. So that took forever. And my editors were very patient. And eventually, it came together in a way that highlighted what I see as the bilingual turn in the study of linguistics, in the study of psychology, the unprecedented attention to what it means to be a bilingual speaker. Mm. One of the big focuses in the book is on the relationship between language and thought. And something that might be very interesting to some readers is your thesis that the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, as it's normally understood, actually doesn't really have much to do with anything said by either Sapir or Whorf. Um, So could you lay out, if that hypothesis didn't come from Sapir and Whorf, where did it come from? Well, this is an excellent question and one that is at the heart of my book. One of the things that happened with Sapir and Worf, both of them passed away very early in their lives, and their ideas landed in the hands of other people post-mortem and inspired the emergence of the field of psycholinguistics. Unfortunately, neither Sapir nor Worf were psycholinguists, they were linguistic anthropologists, and so they did not articulate any kind of hypothesis. And so when psychologists started reading and rereading their work, they felt like they needed to articulate something more concrete, more tangible, more testable. And there were two people at Harvard at the time, Roger Brown and Eric Heinz Lanneberg, who decided to take a stab at Sapir and Worf's writing and re-articulate them in a more hypothesis-like way. So historically, what emerged was really the Brown-Lanneberg hypothesis, not the Sapir and Worf. But what happened since then, people started reinterpreting even what Brown and Lenneberg said. So if we trace the hypothesis from Brown and Lenneberg to Pinker, what Brown and Lenneberg articulate as linguistic determinism for Pinker is linguistic relativity. So he pushes the boundaries and sets the goalpost even further in a way that makes no sense to anyone actually working on the hypothesis per se. So my thesis is that some people reinterpreted the hypothesis in order to make it too absurd to even try and research it. Right. But Brown and Lenneberg themselves, were they doing a good thing in trying to make it testable? Well, um, if we look at this from the perspective of Thomas Kuhn's paradigm change, It was, in a way, unavoidable. They definitely did a productive thing in terms of making it testable and interesting thing to the field of psychology. The problem is that instead of giving it their own name, they tried to link it back to Sapir and Worf. And so, in a way, really obscuring the connection between Sapir and Worf's ideas and their own reinterpretation. 
Right. So it's not that what they were doing was bad. It's just that what they were doing wasn't what Sapir and Worf would have wanted them to do. Exactly. Okay. Worf is a a bit of a tragic figure in the history of linguistics. Do you think history has been unkind to him? Well, um, history, no. People, yes. I think history has actually been very kind to Worf because his name and his work keep coming up and they're still read and republished. The new edition just came out in 2012. So historically, Worf is still a major figure. People, however, have been very unkind in at least some people and including some linguists in not reading Worf per se, but still pronouncing opinions about Worf criticizing him for being a mystic, criticizing him for not having a PhD, and not engaging deeply enough with his actual ideas. So I feel that he has been misrepresented and misinterpreted. Right. Shall we move on to talking about bilingualism then? Because the notion of what it means to be bilingual is quite central to the book. What does it mean to be bilingual for you? Well, um, for me... It may mean something different from what it means to other people. I think many people have their own definitions of what it means to be bilingual or multilingual. But for many bilinguals whom I interviewed and interacted with, it really means to be oriented toward uh, somewhat different communities with which they have to use somewhat different repertoires. Right. So someone like me who only started learning languages in school and has lived for most of their life in the same country with the same people, I wouldn't qualify as a bilingual. You would. Uh, the expanded definition of bilingual that we adopt in research is anybody who has any kind of proficiency in the language and uses this language for any purpose. So you would definitely qualify as a multilingual speaker. Because I suspect you probably read a lot of texts in dead languages. Yes, that's for sure. So there are very different bilinguals that are encompassed under this notion of bilingualism. Uh, definitely. And in that way, by engaging with the text, you are definitely oriented toward other communities and you have an understanding of those communities that the rest of us may not. Right. Another thing that you argue in this book is that 20th century theories of language have been based primarily on the monolingual minds. What do you think are the costs of this focus on monolinguals, and what do we stand to gain from looking at bilinguals? That is indeed the argument I make, and uh, the reason for this argument is really the sort of colonial imperialist attitudes where linguistics was um, situated in North America, in the UK, in largely monolingual English-speaking circles, and was flowing very smoothly to other places. And as you know, even today, uh, the majority, if not all, of our international peer-reviewed journals are in English. And the work in other languages still continues to be ignored. So I do think one uh, type of cost is normalization of monolingualism and English as the norm when, in effect, monolingualism is the minority perspective. And the other is that we ignore the work in other languages and other perspectives on linguistics that become inaccessible to us. So in fact, when we talk about globalization, globalization is something that is situated in the center 
flows from the center, but it doesn't flow the other way around. So in Russia, they may know very well what happens in the United States, but in the United States, we don't really know what happens in uh, Russia in terms of cultural advances, movies, TV, and there are very interesting things happening. So I see globalization as being in many ways a one-way process and us paying the cost for that one-way process because we only process information in English. Right. The other cost to research in particular has been the focus on people as monolingual speakers, even if they were bi- or multilingual. So psychologists have traditionally used bilingual and multilingual speakers in their experiments as speakers of their first languages, ignoring all potential effects of the second language and the first. And that, to me, threatens the validity and reliability of a lot of research in psychology, in particular in terms of language effects on thought, because when we look at these results and analyze them and reinterpret them, we see that second language effects are very visible, and these people don't perform as speakers of their native Russian or Spanish or Tagalog, they perform as bilinguals. And so in order to move the research forward, I argue we actually need to understand what it means to be performing as a bilingual speaker. Okay, so the subtitle of the book mentions language and it mentions thoughts. To what extent are these two notions really the same thing and to what extent are they different? This is an interesting question, and I would approach it from an evolutionary perspective, where the current consensus is that cognitive development preceded the development of language and relied on the same cognitive skills that are common to all primates, such as basic, episodic, and procedural memory, pattern recognition, situation analysis, imitation, recall, basic understanding of spatial relations. So, I do deeply believe that there are aspects of cognition that are non-linguistic. However, given that most of our lives now are happening in language, we do come to associate language with thought. But I would take a deeply Worthian perspective that there is linguistic thought and there's also thought that is non-linguistic. Right. Moving on to the specifics then of some of the individual chapters in the book, you have a chapter on uh, object classification. Are there differences in classification between bilinguals and monolinguals? There are definitely differences between uh, monolingual speakers of different languages and also between bilinguals. So, uh, in cases where we find differences between speakers of different languages, or what we call are functionally monolingual, these differences may stem from either different grammatical patterns, such as shape versus material. So, for example, speakers of noun-class languages prefer to categorize objects on the basis of shape, And speakers of classifier languages categorize them on the basis of material oftentimes, especially if they're simple objects. Bilinguals may display a slightly different pattern. They may be like speakers of one of their languages, or they may show something we know as an in-between pattern and display somewhat different patterns of categorization. Same goes for when languages have somewhat different lexical categories. Bilinguals 
may displace them with larger lexical categories and be still like speakers of Dutch for the most part, French for the most part, when when you look very closely at speakers of Dutch and French, they are slightly unlike speakers of both languages and like each other. So they are doing this as bilinguals. Right. One of the things that interested me that you mentioned also in the same chapter was that Worf discussed colour perception as an instance of non-linguistic thought. Is that right? Yes. Uh, both Boas and Worf made aside comments about colour perception as something not influenced by language. And that is something that is very often missed in discussions of the so-called Sapir and Worf hypothesis, because color was something that Brown and Lenneberg brought to the table. It was not something that came from Worf. So the whole tradition of studying color and saying that this invalidates some of Worf's ideas, is that a bit of a straw man? Uh, yes, it is. And it's deeply unworthian in a very interesting way. Because if you look at the color research, what it's buying into is the existence of the universal category of color. Um, my feeling is that if Worf were still around and talking to us, it's the existence of the natural universal category of color that he would have questioned on the basis of data coming from many Aboriginal languages such as Walpiri. And what would be interesting to Worf is not whether we can differentiate between dark blue and light blue, but what does it mean to not have a category of color in your language? How do you categorize? Do you pay more attention to texture, material? Or what does it mean to acquire a category of color? Do you start perceiving connections that were not important to you before and bringing together green snakes and green apples and green grass because you are now abstracting a category at a very high level of abstraction. So my argument would be that people working on color research missed the fact that color is a highly abstract category that is not universal and focused on something that was really very low-level issue of perception. So perhaps rather than studying how the color domain has been divided up, people should have been looking at the extent to which colour itself is a valid system for categorization for individual speakers. That would be my argument, yes, very much so. Okay, moving on to numbers then. Are we born as humans with a number sense? This is an interesting question, and I would give you two answers. The answer is yes, if by a number sense we mean the ability to approximately differentiate large quantities and differentiated a glance between one, two, and three objects. What research shows is that this ability is shared by preverbal infants and many animal species. The answer turns to no if by number sense we mean something along the lines of an innate number module. Because to date we have documented more than a hundred languages clustered predominantly in Australia and South America, that do not encode numbers beyond 2, 3, and 4, and some purely numeric languages. Their speakers don't engage in quantification practices, and they perform differently in experimental conditions 
from speakers of languages that do encode numbers. So in order for them to perform the same way, they actually need to acquire a numeric system. So the number module is not there, the number sense is. Right. Another well-known typology that you call into question is Talmy's typology of verb-framed languages on the one hand and satellite-framed languages on the other hand when it comes to the encoding of motion. Could you explain what the data from bilinguals brings to this question? This is an interesting question too, and um, the main objection I have to Talmy's typology is that it is based on the implicit assumption that verbs play a central role in description of motion events, which of course does not play out the same way for many individual languages, but it worked fine for linguists as a linguistic typology. However, when people started applying it to psycholinguistic work, this is where we see problems. And in particular, because of the fact that so many empirical studies have focused on English as being a prototypical language for encoding of manner, which I would argue is not because we have many non-manner verbs in English that are very high frequency verbs such as go and get and come. And um, Russian and Polish would serve as a much better example of manner languages because manner encoding is near obligatory. What bilinguals bring to the table in the study of motion encoding is once again this whole idea that languages affect the way we allocate attention and pay attention in particular to the end point of motion. Speakers of German may pay more attention as seen in eye tracking experiments to where somebody is going because they need to encode that end point. Speakers of English and Russian are perfectly happy to just look at the motion because the end point of action doesn't have to be encoded in these aspect languages. And so bilinguals oftentimes perform like speakers of their native language, but if they are very proficient in a second language, they start shifting their patterns of attention allocation. Eventually, those patterns may affect their native language as well. And they may be, let's say, speakers of English, speaking German. And if they are performing an experiment in their native English, they may still pay more attention to endpoints because German has influenced their patterns of allocation of attention. Does that make sense? Yeah. In each of the main chapters of the book you have an extensive survey of the psycholinguistic literature that bears on each individual question, for instance, classification, colour perception, motion, and a table that outlines some of the main findings. So you have a lot of very thorough and empirical and quantitative material there, but you also draw in some chapters on literary material and on case studies of individual speakers. So, for instance, um, Nabokov's autobiography gets some discussion in this book. What is this individual-based material adding to the discussion? Uh, to me, it's actually adding a very important human dimension because it allows readers to connect with the arguments on a very individual human level. It brings in a, a narrative dimension. And I deeply believe that only stories can make things real. 
And so I do take time away from the very tedious minutia of research designs and participant selections so that we could walk down the memory lane with Nabokov and talk about why is it that Nabokov felt compelled to write three autobiographies, one in English, and then when he was invited to publish it in Russian, and starting recalling his childhood in Russian, he remembered so many new details that he was compelled then to reintroduce them into his English text, and therefore we have Speak Memory as the third autobiography Nabokov authored. So do we have multiple different Nabokovs living inside the same head, mediated by the languages they speak? Uh, In some ways, yes, that probably would be Nabokov's answer. He often complained that he didn't feel completely full and real in English, and the poetry he wrote in English wasn't very satisfying to him. And so every time he would finish an English-language book, he would reward himself with a tryst with his ruddy Russian muse, as he called her, and write some poetry in Russian. But despite all of it, he was a wonderful English stylist. How he felt about his English is an aside. Pinker misrepresents Nabokov as not being able to write without a dictionary or speak. And this is absolutely not true. When I was at Cornell, I met many people who still remembered Nabokov from his Cornell years. And he was a sparkling conversationalist, a wonderful writer. What was missing for him was some of the emotional connection to the language, not the mastery of the language. So in that way, we do have somewhat different Nabokovs right there. You've mentioned poetry. Sometimes poetry gets written off as being something somehow artificial and unrelated to real linguistic practice. What do you think poetry tells us about the bilingual mind or about the mind more generally? I do think that poetry highlights uh, some of the missing connections between the mind and the body in second languages, because we have many bilingual writers who successfully write in a later learned language, people like Nabokov or André Makin or Elsa Triolet, but poetry is much, much more difficult And writers who tried writing poetry in other languages complain about the missing part, that goce intimo, as one would say in Spanish, because poetry requires not just an intellectual connection to the language, but a very intimate physical connection. Poetry is material in a way that prose is not. So prose fiction may benefit from that effect of linguistic estrangement I don't experience things as strongly when I write, which worked for people like Jerzy Koszynski, a Polish-English writer in the United States, very well. And he could recall events during World War II that were too traumatic for him to recall in his native Polish and write a wonderful book, The Painted Bird. For poetry, it's the other way around. You need that connection. And that connection is often missing in languages learned later in life. So the inability to experience and write poetry in a later language tells us something about the very physical and material nature of language, taking us from the bilingual mind to the body. And I think that's a very important aspect that sometimes gets lost in our investigations. Let's turn to inner speech now. What language do bilinguals think in? Well, um, 
turning the question to you, I would probably ask, what do you mean by think? And if you mean speak to themselves, there could actually be different answers depending on what we mean by think. Speaking to yourself is an activity that oftentimes takes place in the most dominant language. For many people, the native language is also the dominant language, so we talk ourselves through in our native and dominant language. But if you're like me and you've lived in another country for 20 years, your second language may become your dominant language, and you may be speaking to yourself in a language that your mother never talked to you in childhood. But if we look at language effects on cognition through tasks like allocation of attention or categorization, we may see that the language in which we talk to ourselves is not necessarily the same language that affects our task performance. And so in that way, you can see people who think simultaneously in two or more languages. One is the language in which we talk to ourselves explicitly. We can sort of hear it in our head. And what is the language that continues to affect our task performance? And that is something that is implicit and we don't even notice it. So perhaps we ought to be making a consistent distinction between explicit inner speech and implicit inner speech or subconscious inner speech. This is a, yes, very important distinction that I think differentiates and divides scholars and lay people because lay people think of thinking in language as primarily speaking to oneself in that language. Scholars, on the other hand, think of language effects and cognition as primarily things we establish through experiments. My argument is that we need to take into consideration both, because we always need to be accountable to real people and to talk to them about things that matter to them. Right. Okay, one of the things that you mention in many of the sections documenting studies that have been carried out, is that there are a number of cases of what look like attrition of the first acquired language. Now, we as linguists are often very careful to portray to the public that bilingualism is a good thing, that it's not the the demon that it's sometimes portrayed to be. But do you think people should be worrying about these attrition effects? Well, I don't think people should be worrying about any kind of uh, language effects or attrition effects, but I do think we as linguists need to be doing a much better job in talking to the general public and explaining that a bilingual, in François Grosjean's words, is never like two monolinguals in one body, that some types of language performance will be affected by bilingualism, that language attrition is something that may happen, and may not happen, it is also reversible. But in some cases, it's unavoidable that if we have a second language that becomes dominant, the first language may become somewhat attrited, which means that we lose some vocabulary or it may just be more difficult to retrieve some vocabulary or just remember some words. This is normal, and we need to do a better job normalizing it to the general public. Other than this, what I would really worry about is not attrition, but ways in which we are blind to the categories of our own languages and ways in which we perceive the categories of English, like color, like number, like emotions, 
as universal categories. That, to me, is very worrisome. Yes, and something that crops up a fair few times throughout the book is that it's not just the thought of so-called lay people that is affected by these Worfian effects, that actually linguistic hypotheses and the theories of linguists might be significantly shaped by the dominant language as well. I bet something I definitely argue for, because in my view, where we see Worfian effects is not in some exotic, faraway tribe, but on the pages of scholarly journals, because we have numerous scholars, and not surprisingly, in particular in North American academia, where many scholars are still unapologetically monolingual in English, and they do treat emotions as something that is a universal category, not just for humans, but also for the animal world, rather than an interpretive category that is also quite recent in the English language. And the same goes for color and numbers. So there is an implicit agreement that English language categories are universal, and we can study the minute details of these categories rather than question the categories themselves. So are there certain phenomena that you think monolingual English native speakers will simply never be able to get at by virtue of their language? Uh, no, I don't. I think the whole process of language development and change is driven by our ability to conceptualize things before we put them into words and to use language as a tool of cognition. So, no, I don't think there is something we cannot think about, but I do think that on an everyday basis, when we don't reflect deeply on language, we are driven by things that become normative to us. And it's breaking out of that everyday cognition that thinking about things like the sapir worth hypothesis helps us to do. So it's about defeating habitual thought and thinking outside the box rather than very that, much so rather than hard limitations on what we can and can't think yes one concept that receives some discussion in the book that english does have and that you argue that russian doesn't have is privacy could you tell us about that absolutely this was a concept that i wrote my dissertation on at the time i was living with my mother so let me preface that by saying that something I didn't mention when I was talking about my own background, I am a refugee from the former Soviet Union. And we left the country pretty much as we stood with um, two suitcases. And I had my elderly mother with me and an eight-month-old child. But it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. There was a rise in anti-Semitism. We were Jewish, and so I lived in a refugee camp in Italy, came to the United States, and eventually decided that I wanted to get a PhD. But I was still taking care of my child and my mother, and they, my mother lived with me. And one day, when I was working on a paper of mine for a class, she came into the room and she started talking, and I needed to focus, and I said, Mom, could I please have some privacy? And she was so offended by this comment because in her mind, she was a fluent English speaker. She perfectly well knew what privacy is, even if we don't encode it in Russian. But in her own mind, it was inapplicable to our mother-daughter relationship. It was an offensive concept, as it is to many Russians. And so she took offense to that. And that was the day my dissertation was born. I wanted to see if learning a second language 
allows us to trigger new interpretive forms and see things in somewhat a different way. And so I made a series of films, and I showed these films to functionally monolingual speakers in the U.S., and then I went back to the Russian-speaking context in St. Petersburg, showed them there. And once I established that Americans and Russians talk in different ways, but the exact same events on the screen, with Americans using additional interpretive terms like privacy and personal space, I asked bilingual speakers to do the same task and describe the same movies, and I found that Russian-English bilinguals who spent some time in the U.S. and were acculturated would use the terms like privacy, invasion of privacy, even when they had to tell stories in Russian. So the concept was definitely internalized, integrated in their conceptual frameworks. And when they couldn't express it in Russian, they started slowing down, displaying all sorts of hesitation and lexical breakdowns as they were searching for the way to express what was inexpressible. So that was an interesting finding that once again tells us we don't always pattern with the speakers of the language which we are speaking at the moment. There's a more complex relationship between language and thought than we have thought about this so far. Of all the studies that you surveyed in this book, which are the findings that you personally found the most intriguing and surprising? There are many findings, but let me highlight just one, even though this is the one on um, sort of the low-level perception and cognition that I've criticized so far. This is the one that comes from the UK side, uh, from the University of Bangor, and it's a study conducted by Guillaume Thierry, a neuroscientist, and his team using event-related potentials, ERPs. And what Guillaume Panosetanosopoulos and their team found was very, very interesting. I actually went to the University of Bangor and participated in this experiment to just make sure I see it from the inside. When they played, um, they showed some stimuli that were light and dark green or light and dark blue. And there were also circles and squares on the screen, and participants had to categorize them as either circles or squares. But the, what they were looking for through ERPs, whether the brain picks up the same distinction in terms of light and dark green that is not encoded in either English or Greek, and between light and dark blue. In English, we encoded with modifiers only, just like light and dark green. In Greek, as in Russian, we have separate words for light and dark blue. And what they found was that Greek and English speakers performed in the exact same way in the, noticing the light-dark green distinction, but Greeks perceived the light and dark blue distinction in a much more dramatic way than English speakers. And because this was unconscious, something we call pre-attentive perception, this was a really interesting finding showing that our mind habituates to the distinctions we make in our language. And then when Greeks come to the UK and start speaking English, what they also found that they start paying less attention to the same dark blue and light blue distinction under the influence of English. 
So the mind is really infinitely malleable, and it adapts to the categories we use in everyday speech. That's one of the things you can take from this experiment. Thank you. You mentioned at several points during the book that though there's been a reasonable amount of research on bilingual speakers, some of the really interesting questions haven't yet been asked. What do you think should be the top questions, the top priorities for future research in this area? Well, I do think we need to find a way to move from the really minute and tangible categories such as light and dark blue, as much as I love them, mm-hmm. and I've done research on that too, to larger categories that seem more universal and that are not. Does it make a difference if we have or have not the category of emotion or color? But more generally, my feeling is that we have focused too much on how speakers of other languages, or we have a lovely phrase in the U.S., speakers of non-English languages, how they learn English or other Indo-European languages. And it was very clear to Worf at the time already that standard average European really combines languages that come from Indo-European and maybe is not the way to go. We won't learn much if we compare speakers of English to speakers of Spanish or speakers of Spanish to speakers of French. What we need to do, in my view, is look how we, ourselves, acquire those other languages, including Aboriginal languages. How do Australian linguists acquire career deal, perform in that language? Some of the most interesting insights to me come from the work of Nick Evans, an Australian linguist who talks about his own acquisition of the Aboriginal language Kayardil, which makes him pay incessant attention to compass directions. Mm-hmm. So it's acquisition of new categories, of new ways of framing experience, of new ways of thinking that to me is most interesting. And that links to my previous point about globalization. It's not enough to study how everybody learns English. We have to see, well, what happens when we learn those languages that are non-Indo-European languages? What happens when speakers of non-Indo-European languages learn new categories created by Indo-European languages? So just moving research to a slightly higher plane and asking different questions I would also say we need to ask questions about inner speech, because these are ecologically relevant questions interesting to many lay people who reflect on language. So this would be just some of the directions for future research I see as quite interesting. Mm. And do you think that we'll have to move beyond the traditional psycholinguistic methodology of getting samples, 30 or 40 speakers, controlling and doing quantitative studies. For this sort of more fine-grained study, are we going to have to do something different? I think we will, uh, but I don't think it will mean that we're moving beyond psycholinguistics. I think we'll take psycholinguistics with us and transform it into new, more open and ecologically valid psycholinguistics because there is nothing wrong with psycholinguistics per se. It's just the way in which we have conceptualized it so far. So I see psycholinguistics changing as a discipline as well. So it's just a matter of new questions requiring new methodologies. Very much so. Thank you very much. Um, We're running short of time. So now I'll just ask you, now that this book is on the shelves... What are you planning to work on next? What are your own priorities for future research? Well, 
As uh, I continue my own research, my own priority is to make some of the ideas um, described in this very academic book to the general public. And so my next project is uh, a trade book, and its working title is Does Learning Another Language Change the Way You Think? So I will try to do my best to make the same ideas accessible to people who do not necessarily want to read about the details of research experiments, but are interested in the general um, flow of ideas and arguments. Well, that sounds like a very worthwhile task, and I wish you all the best in connecting with that non-academic audience. For now, though, I'll just say thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much, George. It was a great pleasure to be interviewed for this project. Thank you. I've been talking to Temple University's Aneta Pavlenko about her book, Bilingual Mind, and what it tells us about language and thought. This is George Walton for New Books in Language, saying thank you for listening.